Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. On Monday, Pope Francis welcomed 40 leaders of the world's major religions to the Vatican to call for definitive action on climate change. But can it change the hearts and minds of political leaders? I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from... uh kind of tropical weather in Rome. We had thunderstorms, rain, lightning, winds, then high humidity, now some sunshine, and we don't know what's coming next. Sounds like you live in New Orleans. (laughs) So Jerry, before we get into our main story about this meeting of the world's religious leaders at the Vatican, I want to ask you about this wide-ranging interview that Cardinal Peter Turkson, who's head of the Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development, gave to HBO. Cardinal Turkson was asked directly whether he thought that President Biden should be denied communion because of his pro-choice position, and the cardinal said no. And this is a big contrast to what we've been hearing from some vocal U.S. bishops who think that the president should be denied communion because of his pro-choice stance. Does this surprise you? Absolutely not. If they interviewed any of the senior Vatican officials here, I think they would have got the same answer. I've spoken to many of them, and when Pope Francis on the plane returning from Bratislava, in answer to my question, said that he had never denied communion to anyone in his life as a priest, as a bishop, or as a pope. Several Vatican officials, senior ones, said to me, well, we're all on the same page. So Cardinal Turkson's position is reflecting what is the common denominator, I suggest, among all the Vatican senior officials. Is it unusual for such a senior Vatican official to comment on a case like this that's like such a hot topic of debate? Well, he was asked a direct question, and uh, he's a man who is pretty straightforward. He decided not to dodge it, lest he be misinterpreted by dodging the question. And uh, I think uh, Cardinal Turkson said that he didn't believe in weaponizing the Eucharist. And that's quite a significant statement as well. Got it. Well, we also know that Pope, uh, Pope, we also know that President Biden will be visiting Pope Francis in the Vatican at the end of this month uh, before both leaders head to COP26, which is the big United Nations climate change conference. That's going to be held in Glasgow from October 31st through November 12th. And it'll include 100 heads of state, including the Pope, And ahead of that conference this week, Pope Francis invited 40 leaders of the world's major religions to the Vatican to sign a document appealing to the world leaders gathered at COP26 
to meet certain climate change mitigation goals. Religious leaders from around the world have issued a joint appeal for international politicians to agree to a new global deal to combat climate change. Christian, Buddhist, Muslim and Jewish leaders were among those attending the gathering at the Vatican hosted by the Pope. For their part, the faith leaders made a commitment to educating and influencing their followers about climate change. The BBC's- so this was a huge interreligious meeting at the Vatican. Who was present, Jerry? Well, you've had uh, practically all the representatives of all the major religions and some really top people. You had the, from the Orthodox Church point of view, which is the other major Christian church, you had the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, which is present-day Istanbul, Patriarch Bartholomew, who has for years been a strong advocate for caring for the common home. He, he's really kind of the green patriarch, but also his predecessor was in this field. Secondly, you had the foreign minister of the uh, Moscow Patriarchate, representing Patriarch Kirill, no less. And then you had the acting secretary general of the World Council of Churches. You had the uh, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. You had the head of the Lutheran Federation. Uh, I could go on. But that was on the Christian side. On the Muslim side, you had both the one of the chief figures in the Sunni Muslims, which represent more than 80% of world's Muslims, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Al-Tayeb. He was there. and he, He's the one that Pope Francis signed that human fraternity document with. He's the one that, that yes, and uh, that there's a book which we mentioned on this program, which uh, documents this extraordinary, unprecedented in the history of the papacy, relationship between a Muslim leader and the Pope. Right. Now, there was also a Shia leader there, too. There was also a Shia, Shia leader from Iran, mm-hmm. a, a top figure in Iran. And the fact that the that these can come together at the same table, and there was a, a representative of the Jewish community, of the mm-hmm. Jewish world Jewry. And uh, then there were also the Hindus, Buddhists, Shintos, uh, Sikhs, uh, you, you name it, they were all there. Yeah, Jerry, there was, a, there was a statistic in your story that I found really striking. You said that Altogether, these faith leaders who are present at this meeting represent about 84% of the world's people who identify with any religion. So that's that's a huge number. One notable absence was the Dalai Lama. Can you explain that? Well, the purpose of this statement was to address governments and really to be heard by the main, the big governments, the big nations who are responsible for carbon emissions. One of those big nations is China. They did not invite the Dalai Lama because from China's perspective, the Dalai Lama is seen as a major challenge. They have many ways of describing him, none of them very positive. China would have stopped listening. And the purpose of this gathering was to get China to listen because these are religious leaders and China today is not exactly uh, so positive about religion. That's an understatement. (laughs) That's an understatement. I want to choose my words carefully. Uh, But if you think you have in China, you have Buddhists, Mm -hmm. you have uh, Muslims, you have Taoists, you Mm -hmm. you have uh, uh, Confucian, if you call it religion, and uh, Mm -hmm. you have Christians. And uh, 
the numbers could be quite high in China. On Christians, they reckon maybe you perhaps as many 70 million, perhaps more. But uh, the China, obviously, the present administration of China does not want religion to expand. It, as I said to you on this program before, one very old Jesuit who has now died from China, he told me once, he said, China fears two things, war and religion. And so the whole purpose of this appeal, which was signed by the representatives of the major world religions, as you said, and as I reported, around 80, 84% of the world's population represented, they're sending a very strong message. And they're saying that all our adherents should really be on this page. And it was very significant. There weren't just the religious leaders. There was also some scientists. So, Jerry, is there is there a precedent for this large or this diverse of an interreligious gathering? I remember when John Paul II, in 1986, brought together the religious leaders of the world in Assisi. That was really a breakthrough. And at that time, Cardinal Ratzinger had real reservations about it, future Pope Benedict XVI. But now it's really got, taken a step forward that all these people can say together and sign a statement that from each one, from their religious traditions, they have a vocation, a responsibility, a duty to protect the environment, and to safeguard it for the future of humanity. So according to a recent UN report that, that came out about climate change, we really are at a decisive moment. We know that thanks to efforts in recent years, some of the worst possible climate outcomes have been mitigated, right? We're not going to have the worst outcome possible, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And the aim of this COP26 meeting is to get world leaders to make faster progress towards the goals that were laid out in the 2015 International Paris Climate Agreement. So the religious leaders gathered at this meeting at the Vatican uh, were really trying to encourage those same goals that COP26 has. For example, they called for measures to be taken immediately to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So we're talking about degrees of global warming that that we need to to limit here. The Paris Agreement had said two degrees maximum with 1.5 is the ideal. Now the religious leaders are urging 1.5, keep it at 1.5. And the most recent UN climate report showed that we're dangerously close to hitting that 1.5 degrees of warming. So we need to act now to keep it at that limit. What other things were the the religious leaders calling for in their agreement? Well, I think that, uh, not to bypass that, I think it's very important. No, that's the big one. Yeah. If in this decade... We do not manage to keep it under 2 and around 1.5. The the world is going to be so hot, it's going to be unbearable. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see sea levels rise. And places like the Pope was last uh, before before the the pandemic when we were in Madagascar, they say we will get wiped out if the the temperature uh, continues like this. So it's, it's fundamental. And the message that is coming from the scientists, we're not yet taking sufficient action to protect ourselves within this temperature range. Yeah. They also called for net zero carbon emissions as soon as possible. And they called for a better, faster transition to clean energy, sustainable land use. And then there was this whole thing about finance. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about that. You know, they called on wealthy countries and the countries that are the biggest polluters to 
kind of financially support developing countries. But this has been a big debate uh, around climate change is who's financially responsible. Yes, at the Paris Agreement, many promises were made. Many governments signed on to the international treaty. Some of them ratified it. And that makes it a legal obligation on the country to carry out the promises. Now, one of the promises was to provide $100 billion to the developing countries, the poorer countries, to enable them to take action in terms of reducing what they can of climate, of carbon emissions, but also to protect themselves. And they say the $100 billion promised five years ago in Paris, six years ago in Paris in 2015, hasn't yet been delivered, and it would be much desirable to go beyond that. So when we look at the most recent UN climate report, and we look at these very, very pressing issues, it's really clear that it's urgent for the world leaders gathered at COP26, especially to make these concrete commitments to limit the damage that's already guaranteed to happen. You have already mentioned some of that. So I think that it's clear why this wide array of leaders thought it was so important to come together to urge this action. But I'm curious about how this came together. Like, surely this was a huge effort. The initiative really came from two embassies, from the British embassy. Britain is hosting the Glasgow meeting in partnership with Italy which is head of the G20 right now. Thanks to the coordination of the embassy to the Holy See of Britain, of Italy, and the Vatican, especially the Secretariat of State, and the Interreligious Dialogue Department, they organized every month discussion between the religious leaders, virtual discussions, obviously, virtual dialogue, and the scientists. And the, this culminated in the production of this document. Mm -hmm. And now that all the religious leaders are in Rome, they've also been spending a lot of time together because of the organizers putting together events for them, right? This today, they were sitting with the Pope on a compact for global education. Mm -hmm. It's also uh, there's also going to be a few more events in Rome this week uh, for these interreligious leaders, including a big one hosted by the community of Sant'Egidio, which is a lay Catholic group that's dedicated to social service and ecumenical relations. They're going to have a big meeting with many of the leaders uh, on Thursday at the Colosseum. The Pope's going to give a speech there. They're also having meetings throughout the week. So they're really trying to uh, make this not just a, a one-time thing, but an ongoing dialogue amongst these religious leaders. All right, after the break, whether the interreligious appeal on climate change can inspire political leaders to step up, especially in the U.S. Stay with us. Let's rewind to 2015. Pope Francis released Laudato Si right before the Paris climate meeting in 2015. And because of that, he was widely credited with giving countries that might have been on the fence the final push that helped the Paris climate agreement get unanimous approval from the 175 countries that were present to sign the agreement. Now there's 195 who have signed on. 
And it seems like there's a pretty clear parallel between that effort and the religious leaders gathering to sign this agreement ahead of COP26. So in order to kind of better understand what's going on now, I want to look back to then. Why was Laudato Si able to change so many people's minds? The world leaders, at also at governmental level, recognize that Pope Francis, with his encyclical Laudato Si, which was based on solid information from science, strong input from theology, but also with a global vision. He helped to, with that publication of that document, that encyclical, he helped to get governments to come on board at the Paris conference in 2015. His document came out in June 2015. Paris conference took place for months, five months later than that. And they all looked to Francis. He was seen as a key figure, respected by governments of all different political persuasions and by religious leaders of different political persuasions. Nowhere in the history of the papacy have we seen a pope be able to bring religious leaders together and sign on to a, a, a document which is of massive importance to the whole of humanity, that of protecting our common home. Yeah, one one interesting piece of research that I came across uh, was by a researcher out of Princeton who said that the reason Laudato Si was so effective was that there had been kind of an impasse between developed and developing countries about who needed to take responsibility for climate change and kind of shoulder a lot of the financial burden that it's going to take to to mitigate climate change. And Laudato Si, she said, bridged that impasse by offering kind of a more complex view. It didn't just say this is developed countries' fault or developing countries' fault. It it took into account that there's a wide range of developing countries, right? There are countries that have developed a little bit later than more established countries, and that meant that they were using maybe less less sustainable technologies or uh, were, were pumping out more pollution. But then very, very poor countries also count as developing countries. And Francis in Laudato Si was able to lay out a more complex model that took into account those differences of ability, but also... Uh, older countries' ecological debts to the world and and lay out a complex roadmap that was able to bridge that impasse. So I think the big question here is whether an interreligious statement like this can make a difference. We know that you know there are several major carbon-emitting countries that have signed on to the Paris Agreement, but as you mentioned, haven't ratified it. We have Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. There's also the complication of the U.S. having removed itself from the climate agreement in 2020 and then rejoining this year. And all that just comes together in my mind to show that this agreement is fragile in some ways. It depends on people's goodwill to to stay in it. So I, I wonder with the fragility of this agreement, do you think that religious leaders can actually have have a sway in, in getting countries to commit? I think they have they have a role to play. They form consciences. They educate people. They make people aware of their moral responsibility and their duty as citizens of this one world. Francis and the religious Francis has especially insisted on the importance of understanding that we're all one human family. Now, the religious leaders have the possibility of two things. First of all, of this wider 
education, raising consciousness, but secondly, in their own particular zones, in their own, like, take, for example, in the church, the Catholic Church, in its own areas, it has schools, it has uh, properties, it has a lot of things. What is it doing in itself, in its own areas that it controls to ensure that it is on an ecological, integral ecological path? And many of the bishops' conferences around the world are beginning only to wake up to this. And some of them are still sleeping, and I hope they don't become like Rip Van Winkle and wake up and find that the world has so drastically changed. That uh, And Francis's Laudato Si was meant to spur that action. And this statement, there's a lot of statement by the religious leaders, what we can do. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think also an important thing to consider here is that Laudato Si worked. It got people to to listen. I'm curious if you think that you know these these countries that are left that haven't uh, that are still emitting a lot of carbon but haven't ratified the agreement, Iraq, Iran, Turkey. Do you think that these religious leaders signing on might have any any sway over those countries? Well, we have to see because. Remember, these countries, and I talk about the United States as well, and China and India, let's talk about the big ones too, Uh, these uh, are beginning to realize that their own national security is at stake by not taking action on climate change. You're getting floods. You're getting disruptions. You're getting uh, the risk of uh, diseases. There's a whole lot, whole lot of things, and they're and also they're learning a second thing, and uh, the document I think brings it out that there's a whole new way of doing the economy, of moving into a green economy where there can be creation of jobs, where there can be uh, a new way of producing, a new way of transport, etc., which is not harming the universe. So, Jerry, this is obviously a, a huge priority for the Pope. So. Does an action like this by the Pope, by these religious leaders, apply some pressure to Americans in particular, to the U.S. Bishops' Conference and the American Church to do more than it's currently doing? I think it encourages them. It wakes them up. It sets an example that, for example, the American Bishops' Conference could indeed act as convener of all the religious groups in the United States and say, we have this common problem. It's hitting us right across from California, where you have the fires, to New Orleans, where you are, where you have the floods, mm-hmm. to the East Coast, where you've had also the... the also the, floods. The, 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 yes. And it's a, you know, this is something that's common. Could not the American United States Bishops, Catholic Bishops Conference act as convener and say, let's all get together. Let's together see what we as religious leaders should be doing. This would be a following in the footsteps of what has happened in the Vatican yesterday. And if they took Francis's Laudato Si and say, how are we measuring up to this? Because bishops are meant to be in communion with the Pope, working together with the Pope, under the Pope. And are they ignoring what he is saying and what the world is hailing as visionary document? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Right. You know, we've seen some some U.S. dioceses take some pretty good action on this. We've seen we saw a big push right after Laudato Si in some places to put, for example, solar panels on on the roofs of their churches. But you know, there's also kind of a sense it's difficult to quantify, but kind of a sense that. You know, they think of climate change as being important, but not urgent. That's actually what the former president of the U.S. Bishops Conference, Cardinal DiNardo, said at their meeting in 2019. So, you know, we haven't seen that kind of united front that you're talking about yet in the U.S., uh, but we do know that Laudato Si also changed the hearts and minds of American Catholics. I remember back in 2020, uh, we interviewed a couple of researchers from Princeton University who had actually done like a sociological study and found that the release of Laudato Si was correlated with Catholics shifting opinion on climate change. They actually started to see it a lot more than other uh, subdivisions of Americans as a moral issue and one that required uh, immediate political action. So, I think that there's there's potential here, and we'll have to see if the Pope's effort this week makes a difference. Uh, Jerry, real quick before we go, the Pope, we think, is planning to make the trip to Glasgow for the COP26 conference. What do we know about that so far? We know that the conference starts on the 31st of October, that he is planning to be there on the 1st of November. Uh, a Vatican delegation has visited Glasgow last week, and we will probably have some decisions, I expect, this week, saying, uh, giving us maybe the program. We're only three weeks away, just over three weeks away. So uh, I, the Pope wants to go. The United Nations wants him to be there. Many governments want him to be there. His presence is a message, and the message is what he has articulated in Laudato Si and what is now he is part of central part of this statement by the religious leaders so they realize he's a force to be reckoned with and a force of encouragement and a force that can help turn the tables at critical moment in the history of humanity all right and in addition to everything that we've just talked about we've got a really busy week in the vatican there is a major finance scandal trial happening this week that we're expecting a lot of updates on uh, that is the trial that we previously talked about that involves Cardinal Angelo Becciu. So we'll have updates on that at americamagazine.org. I'm also going to link in our show notes to a previous episode that we did uh, explaining some of the background of that finance scandal. There was also a huge report that came out in France this week detailing thousands of abuse cases that have happened over several decades in that country. This is kind of the French equivalent to the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report or Australia's Royal Commission inquiry into abuse cases. So we have a lot of coverage of that as well at americamagazine.org. This is a huge moment for reckoning with abuse in the French church, and that's going to be a really important story going forward. Jerry, thanks for taking some time to talk with me. Thank you, Colleen. Look forward to next week. Sounds good. See you then. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance this week from Ricardo da Silva and Robert Balliser. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at INSDEVaticanPod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. And if you want to support our work here at America Media, the best way you can do that is by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. 
for American Media with Gerard O'Connell. I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.